This is Professor Allen, and welcome to the Quarter Bin. In every episode of this podcast, I will summarize, criticize, discuss, and review a single issue for my comic book collection, which I will select at random. Any book for my comic book collection is eligible, as long as I paid no more than 25 cents for it. Was the issue worth 25 cents? Was it a bargain at 25 cents, or was it still overpriced? Stay tuned and find out. For this 33rd episode of The Quarter Bin, I'm looking at a DC Comics Presents Mystery in Space one-shot from DC Comics, cover dated September 2004. But first, just a little feat. Podcaster, web artist, and book editor Rob Kelly wrote in after listening to episode 24, our second Micronauts issue. Enjoyed it very much. I'd say any issue of that series is worth a quarter, so you got your money's worth for sure. There are no doubts about that, Rob. And I have at least the next two issues in that series, and one is scheduled for some time not too many episodes from here. Rob also reports that after I appeared on the Fire and Water podcast, where we talked about, get this, cheap comic books, he went to a comic shop near his work and they have a 25-cent bin right at the front door. I grabbed three books, El Dorado No. 1, Doc Savage No. 1, and a reprint of Avengers 87, which must have been a free insert for another book, because on the cover where the UPC symbol is, it's printed not for resale. I was so amused by the thought of being ripped off, just like the good old days of newsstands, that I immediately added it to the pile. I told Rob that I have found past free comic book day books in the 25 cent bins, so I understand the concept of feeling ripped off by a book that costs a quarter. Of course, The Avengers was a blast, Roy Thomas in his prime. But even though El Dorado and Doc Savage were meh, it's nice to read a meh comic and not come away angry because I'd only spent 25 cents for it. If I dropped $3 or whatever, I would have been really bothered, feeling like I'd wasted my money. That is exactly the point I made on that episode with, uh, with Rob and Shag. And that's what I said when I recorded the promo for this podcast, which has really turned out to be true. Even bad comics are a bargain, and good ones are a steal. Rob concludes, anyway, catching up on the show and rest assured, I will be buying more 25-cent books in the future, even if I am getting ripped off. (laughs) Exactly. Uh, Glad to have you listening, Rob. Appreciate the feedback. DC Comics Presents Mystery in Space had a cover price of $2.50, meaning I acquired this comic at a pretty hard-to-beat 90% discount. I need to give a little backstory about this book before diving into the story. Uh, stories, actually, because it has two. So, before setting the comic book time machine for 2004, we're going to need to jump back another six decades. Julius Schwartz wrote, created, and edited DC Comics from 1944 to 1989. After he passed away in 2004, DC created eight issues of DC Comics Presents as tribute comics to Schwartz and to his contribution in DC history. In addition to this one starring Adam Strange, these special issues featured Batman, Green Lantern, Hawkman, Flash, Justice League, Superman, and The Atom. 
Each of these eight special DC Comics Presents featured two 11-page stories based on a classic DC Comics cover of the past, and this was to reflect Schwartz's frequent practice of commissioning a cover and then telling the writers to create a story around that cover. That is totally a Silver Age way to do a comic. Now, I never even knew that these DC Comics Presents specials even existed until seeing this one in the cheap bin. This is still the only one of those I've seen, and I'm curious how good the other ones were. I'm especially interested in how Brian Azzarello did with his take on Green Lantern. Now, this episode marks the fourth time in the last 20 episodes or so that we've talked Adam Strange on this podcast. And it's because this is an Adam Strange book that I picked it up. Now, we covered the 1990 miniseries The Man of Two Worlds in episodes 15, 18, and 21. In the decade or so that followed that mini, his appearances were few and far between. This book, although out of continuity, I think served as a bridge to retconning that prior story away, or at least reversing the results of that Man of Two Worlds story. The cover to this one is by Alex Ross, and is an homage to the classic cover of Mystery in Space 82, originally by Carmine Infantino and Murphy Anderson, from way back in March 1963. Strange is in the center of the page, with Earth being destroyed on one side of him and Iran on the other, and he's thought bubbling, My native planet Earth, my adopted planet Iran, each in deadly peril. There's only time for me to save one. Which shall it be? And each of the issue's two stories represent separate and independent takes on this cover concept. The first story, Crisis on Two Worlds, was written by Elliot S. Magan, with art by J.H. Williams III. We begin in the Southern African Republic of Swaziria. Ralph Dibney wants to take a picture of his buddy Adam Strange in front of a donkey. A donkey that a young African boy is adamant is in fact the rare East African harness zebra. Harness zebra, Ralph says with a grin. It's a tie-dye donkey. A pair of Swazirian police officials step in to the mild confrontation and question why Adam has his red spacesuit in a backpack and where exactly he was going. The roof of the building, he says. But they don't understand that he was going to meet the Zeta Beam. The Zeta Beam, an extra-dimensional arc linking the planet Ran with the world of Earth, four and a third light-years away, dispatched from the Alpha Centauri system in a flurry of exploratory beams over a period of years to touch upon the surface of distant Earth and instantly deposit on Ran whatever it connected with. The Swazirian officials assume he was spying for the U.S. and send him straight to the local jail. He is confused a few hours later when he's released, until Sue Dibney explains that just a little American currency can do wonders. He heads straight onto a plane to Bolivia to catch the next beam, having missed today's. The Dibneys promise to track down his suit and equipment for him. You got it, pal. You just beam off to see that space girl of yours. On Ran... Adam dons the spare suit that Alana just happened to have. There's political unrest in the land involving who controls a weather satellite, and Adam heads off to the northern hemisphere of Ran to see what he can do. The weather satellite has been weaponized, but it is so high up in the sky that the beams are really easy to dodge. 
He does take care of business, and Alana commends him for a job well done. Thanks, maybe we can get some time together before I de-energize. Your little friend and his zebra are still here, she reminds him. They arrived before you did. It's a donkey! Tell him there's no such thing as a... But the calculations are a little off, and Adam finds himself zapped back to Earth. New Zealand, this time. And he learns from a newspaper that in his brief absence of just a few days, Swaziria has become a nuclear power. I don't have a clue how this happened, but I know I'm responsible. And he jetpacks off to Swaziria and finds one of his buddies in his old jail cell. Sue, how did this happen? I can't believe... Believe it, buster. This is where that lost flying suit of yours got us. She explains that Ralph was arrested too, but it's kind of hard to keep the elongated man behind bars, so he's off saving the world somewhere while she remains in prison. Sue explains that Adam's alien gadgets were traded with a terrorist cell for plutonium, enough to detonate an atomic bomb offshore. Adam blasts the jail cell with his ray gun, because that is just what he does. Excuse me, guard, the lady will be leaving now. As they head off, Ralph gives his wife a super-stretchy hug and explains what he has discovered. The Swazirian government's been overthrown twice since this morning, and the latest crew has punched in the launch codes. Adam does some super-fancy calculating with an old-fashioned paper and pencil, and along with Sue using her renowned hacker skills, they see the missile has just been launched. Sue gets into the controls of the missile, all Chloe-style like on 24, and Adam hopes he did the math right. Ralph asks, where are you directing it to, out to sea? Adam replies, it's a nuclear warhead. It's a disaster that it exists at all, let alone. But Ralph has figured it out and interrupts his old buddy. Wait a minute. You said another Zeta beam would hit today? I know where you're sending it. You can't. I have to. There are people on RAND too. Alana! And as a starborn beam snakes from the sky beyond, suddenly the danger is gone from here. We see the missile arrive on RAN. Randy and scientists conclude that the origin is extraplanetary. Analysis suggests it is some sort of fission device, probably designed for remote conflict, and of no cause for concern. On a beach, somewhere in the Caribbean, Adam exposits to the Dibneys that the geological structure of RAN counteracts nuclear reaction. Atomic fission never works on RAN outside of a reactor. He wishes it were that easy on Earth. Sue tries to cheer him up. Oh, you're just missing your lady. Yeah, Adam, can't be all that bad, Ralph says, lifting his drink, complete with its tiny little umbrella. Everybody's dressed casual. Ralph in a flowered shirt and Sue in a nice bikini. Alana's off on a faraway planet, and I get to see her just in the moments between crises. But you two get to be together all the time. Ralph tries again to cheer up Adam. She's with you, in a way. It's almost like we're on a double date, see? And that's the end of the story. And I'm going to talk mostly about the story of itself, the writing, but I did want to mention a few things about J.H. William III's art here. It is appropriately understated. None of these people are superhuman in the sense of needing extreme cartoon proportions. Well, except Ralph, but that's in his own way. All of the characters look human and both Sue and Alana are really pretty. But they're human as well, not superhumanly pretty, not unnaturally pretty. 
not out-of-proportion pretty. Elliot S. Megan started writing for DC in 1970, but his output had slowed down by the time the opportunity came to write this story. But he didn't have much rust on him. This one reads like a classic Adam Strange story to me. And for being only 11 pages long, a lot happens. And a lot of it's character stuff, but there's a lot of it. The only thing we didn't get was Sardath, Alana's father. You know, and he's one of the main characters on the Ran side of the stories, so he was noticeably absent. And no, I'm not sure how the nuclear warhead being dispatched to Ran is a safe option. Adam's techno-babbly explanation seemed like something made up just for this story, and I apologize if that's a long-standing part of Ranian science. But that is a minor quibble, because this one is not about plot. This one is not about creating a great action story. This is a love story, and I am a sucker for a good love story. And actually, this tale had two of them. These may actually be the two best couples in the old DC universe. Adam and Alana is a heartbreak of a setup. And I understood that even when I was reading DC Superstars in Space at 9 or 10 years old, not knowing much for boy-girl relationships. But I knew that being able to see the love of your life for only brief moments at a time, half a universe away, that that was a great plot twist. And then there's the Dibneys. In addition to being great friends to Adam and Alana, their own relationship is terrific. They're clearly great friends, they can make gentle fun of each other, and they're clearly in love. What I like about all four people in these pairings, these two couples, they're all grown up. They're all adults. And what we see in this story are grown-up adult relationships. Yes, there's fun, there's action, there's adventure. There's some great humor, there's even old-school science fiction. All of that happens in this story, sure, but what makes it work for me is Alana and Adam, and Sue and Ralph. I love the Alana-Adam relationship, and if you listen to my coverage of the prior miniseries, you'll know my biggest issue with those issues was how the relationship was portrayed. Nine months after reading them, I'm still bothered by how that story ended. But this one nails the dynamic perfectly. And what can he say about the Dibneys, the only couple in D.C. where nothing bad ever happens and where they live always and forever, happily ever after? Because of the way this special is laid out, let's take a break here, play a promo or two, and we'll cover the second story of this issue when we come back, which will mark for the first time in the long and glorious history of the Quarterbin podcast that we've taken on Grant Morrison. Guys, we finally developed our time machine. Should we use it to go back and see how Stonehenge was built? Or become friends with Hitler and convince him to stay in art school. Or we could go back in time and get the comic books we missed. Yeah! Yeah. The Comic Book Time Machine. A journey back in time to explore comic books. Good and bad. Whether from seven decades ago or seven days ago. Join our journey at comicbooktimemachine.com. 
internet is filled with podcasts of people saying jingles. It's, well, it's no agenda. Adam Curry, John C. Devorak. Time again for the team unofficially known as the G2, fighting disinformation and lunacy all across Gitmo Nation. This is no agenda. From the Crackpot Command Center, burrowed in the southwest quadrant of Gitmo Nation East, I'm Adam Curry. And from the uh, Silicon Valley North, and why am I shouting, I'm asking the other guy, I'm John C. Dvorak. It's Crackpot and Buzzkill in the morning. And we're back. The second story, Two Worlds, was written by Grant Morrison with art by Jerry Ordway and Mark McKenna. So what happens in this story is... Well, what happens in this story is almost immaterial. Two things to keep in mind. One, this is a tribute comic. And two, this story was written by Grant Morrison. In the first story, Magan's approach was to write something in the style of a Silver Age Julius Schwartz era story with an era-appropriate approach and overall vibe. But that's not how Morrison plays. He gives us a metatextual narrative about Julius Schwartz's style and his era, inserting references to and appreciations of the great man via the story's caption boxes. I mean, there is a plot, there is a story, and I can summarize it pretty quickly. Adam Strange is tortured for information by an Earth-based military unit, probably American, as they prepare to attack Ran. The Ranians are smart and scientific, sure, but they're soft, and since there are no oil-based economies left to conquer on Earth, Ran seems a reasonable target. And who did they pick for a planetary hero? An archaeologist, for God's sake. They have duplicated Adam's DNA so the entire unit can ride the Zeta wave right into Randian space. Strange tries to warn them that the location they're transporting into will be dangerous, but they proceed anyway, and appear in the midst of a combination swarm of monsters and high desert winds, and the Earth force is utterly destroyed. Looking out across the remains, the place where Earth's war with Ran would have begun, and ended, Alana asks whose side Adam would have been on if it had come to that. His response, a big old smooch on the lips of the love of his life. That's the story, a whole two-paragraph summary. But this is Grant Morrison, and a whole lot more is going on than that pretty simple story. To me, there are a couple of things that make comic books different, unique almost from other modes of storytelling, kind of in the way that camera movements and editing makes filmmaking different from a stage play, or in the way that television has taken advantage in the last few decades of season-long arcs to differentiate itself from film. The design options that comic books afford, in terms of shape, size, and panel layout, is unique to comics, as are caption boxes. These allow the writer to comment upon the action and dialogue, to address the reader directly, to serve a similar function to, to say, a Greek chorus. It's this second aspect that Morrison utilizes to great effectiveness in this story. Say what you will about him, and I'm not always his biggest fan. He knows how to take advantage of this aspect of the comic book form. Morrison references... The Cold War era, which brought us Adam Strange, 
with this caption near the beginning. In somewhere in another world, there's Julie and Jack Schiff drawing straws over the stewardship of National's latest space heroes, while right above are traced the brave arcs of tiny Russian satellites, peeping through the weightless chambers of the night like baby birds of prey. And shortly thereafter, we get this. Entertainers and educators alike have received the same bugle call to arms that says if we're to compete with the Reds in orbit and beyond all that to the starry endless unknown, then someone has to start pushing the idea of careers in space. And now. So these caption boxes serve as a running commentary on the story, pitting the optimistic future of 1950s sci-fi against the cruel world of the 2000s. When the commander makes the crack about Rand's hero being just an archaeologist, the caption box reports, The Major says this, but Julie knows how to pick the character of staying power. His heroes have something about them, these sleek and fearless pioneers in their modernist couture. The two worlds theme that makes Adam Strange who he is, is reflected in this caption a few pages later. Ten years after Sputnik, the kids who read Julie's books will march on the Pentagon, stoned and rebellious in their threadbare rocket suits, lost between two worlds, and will die in mud, heavy with metals, victims of politics and ballistics. As Adam is working on saving the worlds towards the end of the story, we're told, somewhere there in still-life Manhattan 1950s, Julie thinks it through and leaves Space Ranger to Jack Shift. He'll take Adam Strange. I think it's more dramatic having something strange and imaginary happening today than in the far future. The far future is already imaginary. My favorite of these commentary boxes, if you will, were at the very end of the story as Adam and Alana embrace. And as I said before, I'm a sucker for this relationship. Sputnik's song beeps and bops and fades away, one last echoing reminder of the soul's lonely search for that safe harbor beyond the broken-down old world, that silver dream, that perfect someone, that perfect world. I do think that in this story, Morrison puts his finger on why Strange's popularity has been in such decline for decades now, and why I fear he may not be a viable character in the ultra-hip, ultra-modern New 52 where hope has been replaced by cynicism. His assertion that Strange is a product of the Cold War is deadly accurate. Is there a place for him in a world where we don't grow up dreaming of landing on the moon, where the shuttles have been grounded, and the space program seems to have no vision, no purpose, no direction? But fear not, if I have my way, we have not heard the last from Adam Strange on the Quarterbin podcast. I do want to mention the art in this story as well. There are two art styles at work here, often on the same page. It's an idea that works well, again using the space of the comic book page to good effect. Flashbacks of Adam on Ran are bright and colorful, like a 1950s science fiction comic. But the current day, the interrogation scene, the attack scenes... Those are dark and brooding and shadowy, drawn in inked and colored in a much more modern 2000s way. And this added to the idea of a story of two worlds, of two attitudes, of two realities. 
these contradictory art styles back up what Morrison is saying and is really an effective approach to telling a comic book story of this very unusual nature. The verdict on DC Comics Presents Mystery in Space. Well, it was 25 cents, 22 pages, with two complete 11-page stories. One of them tugged at the heartstrings, and one was more aimed at being thought-provoking. Definitely worth a quarter. This one was a real treat. The fact that this was in the quarter bin only 10 years after publication speaks to the market failure of the book. There is no doubt about that. Maybe a decade ago for $2.50, it wouldn't have been as satisfying. But, I don't know, I thoroughly enjoyed it. And even though I'm not necessarily going to seek out these other tribute issues, well, maybe that Green Lantern one, actually. That wraps up my coverage of DC Comics Presents Mystery in Space, bringing episode 33 of the Quarterbin podcast to a close. In episode 34... We'll be jumping back into the past another 25 years from this episode, but looking at Marvel 2-in-1 number 52 from Marvel Comics, obviously, cover dated June 1979. If you have any questions or comments about this issue or the podcast, feel free to contact me. Until next episode, I'm Professor Allen, and I'll see you in the quarter bin. The Quarterbin Podcast is part of the Relatively Geeky family of podcasts. Show notes and links are available at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com, where the podcasts Uncovering the Bronze Age and Shortbox Showcase also make their home. Links to Facebook and Twitter are there as well. Feedback for the show is welcome at relativelygeeky at gmail.com. And if you like what we've got going here, please leave a review and a rating in iTunes. It'll help more people discover the show. Thanks again for listening. Professor! Professor.